Silky Glasses Production on the Osiris Podcast Network. When the day Howdy, heads. What you're hearing is the good old Grateful Dead performing cryptical envelopment, soon to morph into Wharf Rat, from a concert at the University of Minnesota, originally broadcast live on KQRS-FM on October 19, 1971, a show that also happens to be the first appearance of keyboardist Keith Godshaw, but no Donna just yet. Every so often when I'm putting together an episode, I get the feeling it's going to be a good one. This awareness is kind of mysterious. In fact, it reminds me of how members of the dead described their sense of knowing it was a hot set. Certain things just click without having to fuss too much about them. It's rare when it happens, but you learn not to look a gift horse in the mouth and just accept the miracle. I'm going to keep this intro short because I want to get to that good stuff, and there's plenty of it with our special guest David Gans, who has some terrific stories from his decades-long exploration of the Grateful Dead. David is a musician, author, broadcaster, and all-around interesting guy who has contributed more to the Dead scene than just about anyone you'd care to mention. As the producer and host of the syndicated radio show, The Grateful Dead Hour, he helped a nation of deadheads experience broadcast bliss with expertly curated live sets and more. As the co-host of The Golden Road on Sirius XM's Grateful Dead channel, David creates an open and collegial environment for deadheads known and unknown to share their stories. You can follow his adventures at dgans.com. And speaking of stories, I have a quick one that I want to tell that fits the theme of this episode, which we're calling Dead Air. Regular listeners know I was slow to get on the bus, but it might not have happened at all if it weren't for radio. A few years ago, I was starting to write my book, Obligatory Plug, William S. Burroughs and the Cult of Rock and Roll, comes out on June 11 and is available for pre-order on Amazon. Anyway... When I was writing, I needed music that I could vibe with over long stretches without having to stop and find something else to listen to. At some point, I ended up on the SiriusXM Grateful Dead channel. Full disclosure, I work for the company, but my story would be the same regardless. The point is, radio was how I got it. That experience made me think about the Dead's relationship to broadcast media over the years. And as with all things Grateful Dead, the more you look, the more you find. I'm guessing my co-host Eduardo can back me up on this, so we should probably check in to make sure. Eduardo, let's do this. All right, so the theme of this episode is dead air, which I think is an opportunity to talk about the Grateful Dead's relationship to broadcast media, like radio. And that relationship definitely exists, but as is the case with most things in the Grateful Dead, it looks a little bit different than other rock acts, particularly rock acts of the 20th century. Yeah, I'm wondering if some of our listeners need to be told what radio is. <laughs> Kids, do you know what radio is? I mean, it's basically like a podcast, but you can't choose when to listen to it, I guess. 
<laughs> but I've got some personal feelings about this because when I was a little kid, it was the tail end of radio's freeform period back when FM stations would play an entire side of a record if the DJ was feeling it. It was way more friendly to bands like The Dead than today's commercial radio marketplace. Of course, The Dead also didn't have a ton of what we would recognize as hits until Touch of Grey, but they definitely got some airplay. I can't imagine a band like that coming out today and even having a snowball's chance in hell on terrestrial radio. And by terrestrial radio, I mean AM, FM radio. Yeah, I mean, you know, Santana had a hit, but it took Rob Thomas. So. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, you will hear both bands on classic rock radio, but the weirder dead stuff is not made for the commercial FM dial. They're just clearly an impossible band by today's media standards. Although outside of the traditional media standards, they are probably more viable today than maybe ever before, even including when they were around. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And you referenced Santana's collaboration with Rob Thomas, which was ubiquitous in that last gasp of mono media before the internet came along. <laughs> Do you remember what year Smooth came out? I feel like it was 99 or 2000. Ah, okay, so it was definitely after the 1996 Telecommunications Act. Okay, kids, buckle up. We're going to get a little bit of history on media policy here. You all ready? You excited? This is important stuff, people, so perk up. <laughs> yeah, step lively, whippersnappers. <laughs> so I was talking about the radio that I grew up with, and when I was a little kid, you could have put a blindfold on me and put me in the backseat of a car and driven me from Portland, Maine to Portland, Oregon. And just to note, this never actually happened to me. <laughs> just hypothetically. But if it had... On that entire ride, I might have been able to tell you, even as a eight-year-old kid, where I was in the United States simply by what was on the radio dial. Like, if you're in New Orleans, you know you're in New Orleans. If you're in Chicago, you know you're in Chicago. If you're in Detroit, you know you're in Detroit. Or at least that's the way it used to be before the 1996 Telecommunications Act. And here's what that piece of legislation did. Previously, there were caps on the number of broadcast stations a single corporate entity could own, and that's why radio was a highly competitive marketplace of mom-and-pop stations that really had a lot of regional flavor and identity. Now, the Telecom Act was a really big bill, and it did a lot of different things. One of the things that it did was remove the broadcast ownership caps for radio. And so everything kind of changed almost overnight. Instead of DJs having a lot of autonomy, you end up with this homogenized approach where you only hear the same 10 to 12 songs in whatever format. But to get back to the whole Santana Smooth situation, I'm guessing that that song was a hit because the major label that put it out could make it a hit, whether that was by Paola or just because they had that level of influence with the consolidated broadcasters. I mean, Clive Davis was the guy behind Supernatural, and his label, Arista Records, was also the label that put out Built to Last, which had Touch of Grey. Right, they worked it. They did, and back then, if you worked it like that, you you really could have a monster hit in those days of mono media. But for most of their career, the dead did not have monster hits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think one of the things that's to me always really charming about the first half of the Grateful Dead's career is just how interested in kind of swinging for the fences they were. And right. some of that is what you would expect in terms of artistic ambition, like, hey, let's go play a show in Egypt. Right. Some of that is a little more harebrained, like, <laughs> let's take a year and change off and go broke trying to make a movie. That... <laughs> yeah, or let's start a record label and our distribution model will be ice cream trucks. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> right. I mean, right. they did start the record label, but they dropped the ice cream truck idea, which makes me wonder, what would today's music landscape look like if they hadn't? Would Spotify serve ice cream? <laughs> True to some sort of, you know, perverse axiom of commercial and artistic success, it feels like when they were finally comfortable being in their little corner of uh, the cultural universe, they fell into a hit. Yeah, and isn't that something? Touch of Grey was on the radio all the time in the late 80s and early 90s, and even the video was in fairly heavy rotation on MTV. I've always been puzzled as to why that song clicked at that time. What do you think was behind it? Um, I feel like it's a combination of there's a few lines in there that, that probably really resonated with kids who were frustrated under the sort of Reaganomics uh, state of affairs. And I think there were probably a lot of parents who remembered the dead fondly and who were weirded out by punk rock and then... Right. Uh, and suddenly the dead come along and they're like, oh, I remember these guys. This is sort of like as if Cat Stevens or the Beatles had a song out today, right? I should encourage my kids to listen to this. <laughs> right. Hey, look, it's that cheerful bearded guy from our pot smoking days, honey. And look, they are still trucking. <laughs> exactly. Of course, if you go back in time, you'll find that the Grateful Dead were absolutely not radio hit makers. I suspect this is because... Even their catchiest songs had lyrics that were not going to fly on whatever passed for Top 40 radio back then. Like the main character in Casey Jones is high on cocaine. They mention that early and often. Yeah, and which would be, by the way, the tamest chorus Post Malone has ever recorded, probably. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. But, you know, back in the day, radio was the way that you sold records. And I kind of think that the reason that the Grateful Dead records weren't flying off the shelves might have had something to do with the fact that they didn't have a strong presence in terms of radio singles. Well, it's absolutely a part of their story, right? Yeah. There's no telling of the Grateful Dead that doesn't include the fact that they were incredibly successful by what were then non-standard industry metrics. And, you know, some of this is really driven by format. In the pop radio realm, the Dead songs are just too long for that format. And I'd say that's probably true for the recorded side as well, at least with vinyl LPs. The best versions of their songs were just simply too long to be contained on a side of wax. Yeah, there was clearly no way for their strength, for their calling card to be delivered via traditional media. Yeah, exactly. But as is the case with the Grateful Dead, there's also another side to that story. In fact, a healthy number of their shows were actually broadcast live on the radio. In the mid-1960s, KSAN started broadcasting dead shows and did so here and there throughout the decade. In the 70s, you had KMPX and on the East Coast, WTBS. So some of that long-form jam action did make it to the airways. It's also interesting to remember that when... Phil Lesh first met Jerry Garcia. He was at a party and Jerry was just playing some acoustic guitars and stuff. Phil was inspired to drive all the way back to Berkeley and get some tape recording gear. He taped Jerry around the kitchen table and then he brought those recordings to KPFA and got Jerry on a show called The Midnight Special. They heard it and they were like, ooh, he could have the whole hour. Oh, yeah. But I think the real colonization of radio by the Grateful Dead happened in the 80s. And that was driven by the Grateful Dead Hour, which started on KFOG and ended up getting picked up by stations all across the country. The guy behind that show, David Gans, is stopping by a little later, which is incredibly exciting. But the point is, 
Despite what program directors and listener surveys might say, there actually was demand for the Grateful Dead on the airwaves. I mean, without the Grateful Dead hour, I don't even know if we'd be talking about any of this stuff today, right? It was a revered guide. Oh, yeah, still is. I think it also speaks to some of the issues we talked about when we were talking about how to dead, which is this idea that the vault is an intimidating thing, right? It's like walking into a library where you don't know any of the genres or authors on the the bookshelves and, and... you suffer from this um, option paralysis. And um, and so having a trusted voice to guide you through is is really the way to dive into, uh, you know, something that's so intimidating otherwise. You know, there are other mass media opportunities that came up for the dead, like television, for example. I mentioned MTV and Touch of Grey. And I think in our Punk is Dead episode, our guest Michael Burnetto mm-hmm. talked about first seeing the band on PBS, which is adorable. So there was some action on TV with the dead. Not that they really pursued it. I mean, Al Franken and Tom Davis had to beg them to appear on SNL in the early 80s. They did not make it easy for anyone to work with them in a sort of charming, uh, cantankerous way, I think. Oh, yeah. I think they maintained a healthy kind of distrust of institutions, and they probably wore that, you know, outsider freak identity as a badge of honor, I think. Oh, for sure. Having failed to basically break through in the late 60s and early 70s, I think they they kind of became really committed to uh, delineating their cultural space. And when you do that really well, and when you stake out your position and you don't move from it, eventually the culture at large finds a way to make it to you, I guess. I can't really see Jerry Garcia having much patience for sitting in a makeup chair. (laughs) Right. Speaking of television, you know, Jerry and Bobby did a few episodes of Letterman. Um, They did some musical performances as a duo, which are charming, but I'd argue the best bits are actually on the guest couch. Like I've watched those on YouTube and, and it's like they could have had a second career as a stand-up duo. Yeah. Like Bob Weir's the best straight man in the business. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Well, I think anyone who ever spent time with the band would always remark about just the quality of the conversation backstage and that, you know, these were all smart, well-read, uh, larger-than-life personalities who were argumentative and not willing to accept generalizations by nature, which makes conversation really difficult but really interesting. Yeah, man. And that's how you learn stuff. And speaking of learning stuff, I always thought the Grateful Dead should have made an appearance on Sesame Street because they're basically the musical equivalent of Snuffleupagus. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. They're like this hairy, organic, shambolic thing that just appears out of nowhere and disappears of its own accord. Yeah, only seen at special times by special people. Gang, you know what I think? I think it's time to. What would radio be without Tom Big Daddy Donahue? What's that? You don't know who Tom Donahue is? Well, kick back and let us feed your head. Known as the father of progressive radio, in the late 1960s and early 70s, Tom Donahue was a DJ at the legendary San Francisco stations KMPX and KSAN. 
There, he pioneered freeform radio on the previously ignored FM band. In doing so, he revolutionized broadcasting and helped usher in rock and roll's first renaissance. In 1967, Donahue wrote a manifesto for Rolling Stone called AM Radio is Dead and its Rotting Corpse is Stinking Up the Airwaves. That same year, he changed KMPX-FM from a foreign language outlet into the first truly hip channel on the dial. Born Thomas Komen in South Bend, Indiana in 1928, Donahue grew up in Washington, D.C., becoming a familiar voice on mid-Atlantic top 40 stations before departing for the West Coast in 1965, where he set up a management and booking firm and also launched a record label called Autumn Records. The imprint scored some hits with the Bo Brummels and Bobby Freeman, but he notoriously passed on an up-and-coming act called The Warlocks, soon to become The Grateful Dead. He kept an eye on the band's progress, however, and played their music regularly, first on KMPX and later on KSAN, which was one of the first stations to broadcast an entire live Dead concert. Donahue also hosted Jerry Garcia and Phil Lesh for an in-studio rap session back in April of 1966. Donahue's contributions to radio are immense. He convinced station owners to allow album-oriented rock without playlists 24 hours a day, which inspired other stations around the country to follow suit. His rich baritone voice and anti-establishment ideals made him a folk hero in the emerging counterculture. Sadly, Donahue died of a heart attack in 1975, a month before his 47th birthday. Though his time on Earth was short, his influence is still felt even on this very podcast. Wow, that's a crazy fast Tennessee Jed, right? Probably because it's the first time they ever played it. It's from the same 1971 show at the University of Minnesota that we played at the top of the program. As it turns out, the boys debuted five or six new ones that night, not including the keyboardist. A shout out to our friend Jason George, who many of you will remember from our Evil Dead episode for hooking us up. Oh, and here's a tip. Be sure to check out the show notes for a recording of Jerry Garcia and Phil Lesh on Tom Donahue's KMPX show from April 1966. It's like the best podcast you ever heard, and it's from half a century ago. I'm really excited to talk to David Gans, who is not only a legend of broadcasting, but also an author and a musician. As the host of The Golden Road on Sirius XM's Grateful Dead channel, he listens to other people yap all the time. So it's very cool to have a chance to hear his point of view on his own music and everything dead. So let's all say hi to David Gans. So, David, a lot of deadheads are familiar with you as the co-host of The Golden Road on Sirius XM's Grateful Dead channel or as the guy behind the long-running syndicated radio show, The Grateful Dead Hour. I'm really impressed by your way with people. You just seem to be able to get folks comfortable in a way where they really open up. But you're also not a pushover, which is really, <laughs> really great when you're talking to folks from the dead scene. So what's, what's your secret? I don't know. I, I have always tried to maintain a sort of a naturalistic uh, persona on the radio. You know, one of my favorite things about 
meeting people is, you know, that when they observe that I sound the same in real life as I do on the air. That's because I, you know, never wanted to have one of those irritating personas. <laughs> yeah, I never wanted to be one of those, you know, those radio voice guys. Straight from central casting. <laughs> I grew up making fun of those people. So when I got into radio, I just maintained my own way of speaking. And the other thing about what I do on radio is that it's never been about me since day one. Right. I got into radio because of the Grateful Dead. I mean, I loved radio and I, you know, like every kid who ever had a tape recorder, I did pretend DJing when I was little. <laughs> yeah. But when I got into radio, it was to put the Grateful Dead on the air. Right. I had been a journalist already, so I had developed the ability to get people to talk, you know, in my print work. Sure. So when I got on the radio, it was just a matter of continuing to serve the music, place the music in front of everything else, not inject myself into the conversation unnecessarily. And in the case of Tales from the Golden Road, the entire job description is make people comfortable so they will talk to you on the air. Indeed. I know our listeners will be interested in your journey from Grateful Dead fan to multimedia producer, really, who's done just as much as anyone to perpetuate the band's legacy. But they can wait a minute because <laughs> I also want to know about your development as a musician and a songwriter. Can you tell me a little bit about that part of your life, like how you got started in music and what keeps bringing you back to the well, so to speak? Well, all of these things are interconnected. I, I basically have led an improvised life. You and me both. <laughs> I was a fairly aimless teenager in the early 1970s when I was introduced to the music of the Grateful Dead. Mm -hmm. Everything that I have done in my adult life has been music related to one way or another. I played the clarinet when I was a kid. And then when I was 15, my older brother, who had been playing the guitar for a while and owned one, Ooh. took a couple of my teenage poems and set them to music. And he taught me the chords. Nice. So I became a guitar player and a songwriter at exactly the same moment. It's the way to do it. And over the almost 50 years since that happened, I've come to realize that that's a very important aspect of my musical nature because I, I didn't go through that period of only ever playing somebody else's music. Right. First thing I ever played on a guitar was my own song. I, of course, spent huge amounts of time playing other people's songs, and I probably have a library in my head of a few thousand songs that I could play from memory. Wow. But uh, all the while, I was writing my own songs, and I got good at it fairly early. I recently uh, found a tape of a performance I did on KTAO in Los Gatos, California in December of 1972. And I played a full suite of songs that my lyricist uh, roommate and I had written together. Amazing. And I, I listened back to it and I realized that musically it's pretty dang sophisticated for a 19-year-old. Wow. And the lyrics, you know, there's a little bit of the lyric stuff that sort of reflected the fact that we were kids. Sure. But it was remarkably competent stuff for my age. And I've written you know, probably a hundred songs since then, you know, a lot of them I left behind, but some of which I still do. That's great. I have at least one song in my repertoire that dates back to 1970 when I was a kid, a senior in high school. It's amazing to have that through line from when you started. I've been listening to your recordings. I, I love the way that you turn everyday observations and experiences into these picturesque and even acerbic songs that still feel open and authentic. Is that something that you'd say you picked up from, I don't know, Robert Hunter or the 
Dead songwriting vibe in general? I would definitely call the Grateful Dead my single largest influence. They really revolutionized my understanding of how music works. When I got into the Dead in 72, I had already been a musician for a few years, and I was deeply into Crosby, Stills, and Nash, the Beatles, Jackson Brown, Cat Stevens, Elton John, that kind of stuff. You know, I, I was intending to become one of those singer-songwriter types. Uh But The Grateful Dead opened me up to a whole world of other possibilities about music. I mean, it took me a while to understand what was happening in those jams between the songs, but they had already hooked me with the songs themselves. That's key. I started seeing The Dead at sort of the end of the Pigpen era and the dawn of the Bob Weir era. So there was just this huge smorgasbord of great songs in every show, and there were dozens of songs in every show. In 72, 73, these shows went on and on, and they were full of wonderful, wonderful songs and The Dead's interpretation of other people's songs. And that's another one of the key things that they taught me. First of all, that... The Grateful Dead taught me to write songs that don't tell you everything they know the first time you hear them. So true. I gave up my idea to write like a hit record. I decided instead to write songs that really had something to say, thanks to them. And also to recognize that live performance was important. Yeah. I mean, there's a sort of continuum between bands like the Eagles that played their records perfectly at every show. Not a hair out of place. And the Grateful Dead and jazz and all this music that does not rely on perfect repetitions you know absolutely so the grateful dead sort of yanked me by the ear over into the improvisational world and over time that became one of the most important aspects of my performances i really just wanted to deliver an honest genuine and spontaneous in the moment performance every time and the other key thing about the dead was that they treated all material equally yeah They wrote these amazing songs. I mean, just brilliant songwriting of their own. Deep, deep stuff. And they had this amazing collection of songs that came from tremendous variety of sources, you know, from Merle Haggard to the Bahamas to free jazz to, you know, bluegrass and rhythm and blues and stuff. Mm -hmm. And they took all these songs and told those stories in their own voice. That's right. And any given show would be some new sequence of familiar and unfamiliar songs strung together in this way that sort of created an overarching narrative. And so I began to recognize that the job was, you know, not to highlight my latest song or anything, but to tell a fresh story in real time using any of the available resources. A given Grateful Dead show might start with an original and then be like three or four interpretations. You know, they, they would do like Mama Tried or Walkin' Blues mm-hmm. or Fenario, you know, an old English folk song and stuff like that. Right. So they didn't privilege their own originals over the other material. They treated everything as a viable opportunity for a given moment. And they strung together their shows according to the, the way things felt in the moment. All of those things became prime directives in my own performance right you know, i really want to tell a true story every time and pick the song that makes sense for that moment rather than make a set list ahead of time and attempt to drive the moment into my clutches yeah 
there's a multifaceted vernacular that's available in their repertoire. And I think it's just so inspiring to know that you can approach music making that way. You mentioned performance. You also do a lot of work with looping pedals, which I think is an interesting way to combine more traditional voicings like acoustic guitar with modern technology. What inspired you to adopt that approach? Ah, well, my touring life began about 20 years ago. I think I did my first out-of-town gig in 96 and got into traveling to play in 98. So I'm about 20 years into it. Time flies. I started going out with my Martin guitar, and I had some problems with the pickup that I was using. And so I wound up buying a Rick Turner Renaissance. I've been playing Rick Turner guitar since 1981. I had one of his electrics. One day I was in his shop getting some work done on my electric, and I picked up one of these renaissances off the wall in his his uh, shop, and I just fell completely in love with it. Nice. I, I guess they call them a stage acoustic. It's a sealed chamber hollow body with piezoelectric pickups, specifically designed and built from the ground up to be a tremendously great sounding acoustic guitar in amplified environments. Excellent. So once I had the renaissance under my arm, I could go out and play live gigs and get really, really good sound. And I started using pedals and stuff. There you go. And I quickly bought a Line 6 digital delay device. Ah, yes, the green machine. Yes. And one of the things that I wanted it for was to be able to loop uh, the changes of a song so I could play a solo, you know? Uh It turns out, though, even when you use the half-speed thing, you only got something like 28 seconds of looping time on it and it wasn't enough yeah you know i would like be playing me and bobby mcgee and i wanted to record the changes of the verse so i could play a solo after the first chorus right there's a few changes in that one but the green thing didn't have enough storage time to record a whole song's worth in real time so i started shopping for a looper and i wound up on these boss loop stations those are sweet too and the main reason i got it again was so that i could accompany myself Mm -hmm. and play a solo in a given song or whatever. Yeah. But I immediately figured out that there were huge creative possibilities having that device on the floor in front of me. And I started doing improvisations using it where you I, I play a, a, a just free playing until I came up with a phrase that I liked and I would capture it in the looper and then it would start playing back and I would improvise along with it, right. harmonizing and counterpoint and stuff like that. And I would build spontaneous compositions. And that just became a really, really fun thing to do. And I started incorporating that into all my shows. Right. Plus, it enabled me to create pieces that were designed specifically for that. One of my favorite things that I have is a a song, a piece called quarter to five Mm -hmm. if you're familiar with the work of terry riley there was a piece called in c absolutely that revolutionized what they call aleatoric music Mm -hmm. by the way i learned a lot about this from phil lesh so it also folds into my grateful dead experience he'd be the guy to show you (laughs) yeah well the thing about in c is that it's basically sort of a type case of musical gestures that are available to the players in the orchestra and they have options about which ones to play and how to play them in the structure of the piece so the piece is kind of a formula yeah and as i said kind of a type case of musical gestures and some rules for how to use them but every performance is different right. the only thing that's consistent in it is that the piano plays this single note drone throughout the whole yeah. thing everybody else has lots of options so every performance is different and my song i have several pieces like this it begins with a specific 
four bar pattern. Okay. And I record that and I start playing along with it and I will improvise and I have like four or five melodic pieces that are incorporated into it at different times. I introduce them differently each time. I would introduce them in different orders. Each of them has a harmony line that I may or may not use with it. Yeah, so those are your motifs. My type case is a lot smaller than Terry Riley's, Mm -hmm. but it's the same basic idea. It begins with a consistent substrate and then gives me these infinite options of what to do with the pieces. And also I can just start playing, you know, like a a totally improvised solo on top of it all at any time. Yeah. So this gives me, as a solo performer, so much more to do, and it makes me feel so much more creative than I was when it was just me and an acoustic guitar with maybe a pedal or two. Yeah, and that's crucial because when you're in a solo performance setting, you really want to have that feeling of serendipity that can happen when you're playing with other people, but is harder to get at when you're by yourself. And what you're describing also reminds me of Robert Fripp's Frippertronics, which was an early version of looping. Yeah. And when Fripp was going around doing Frippertronics, he had to carry a couple of Revox tape decks. I know. Now the technology for that costs 300 bucks and sits on the floor in front of you. You know, it's amazing. <laughs> it really is. It is amazing. But even in terms of traditional songwriting, you've got some aces up your sleeve there, too. I was listening to your latest record, Drop the Bone. Uh, the song Summer by the Bay really captures the feel of Northern California. It's got that beachy bounce to the music. And Thank you. the lyrics kind of have a photographic realism to them, but they're also really amusing. So I'm guessing you still find inspiration, whether it's positive or negative, in the California lifestyle. Is that fair to say? To steal a line from the amazing cartoonist Gay and Wilson... I paint what I see. (laughs) Well, there you go. Again, I decided long ago that I wasn't going to write bullshit songs. (laughs) And I wanted to say stuff only when I had something to say. And I'm a fairly slow writer, although over 50 years I've accumulated quite a catalog. Sure. I have a lot of sketches. I have a lot of ideas that I'm sort of kicking around in the back of my head. But I kind of let them gestate inside until they sort of begin to take form. And then I'll sit down and put some discipline into trying to realize them, you know. But I I just wait until I have something that I think is worth saying and then Mm -hmm. build a song around it. Yeah, it's a great method. I wanted to get back to the other side of your origin story and maybe drill down a bit more on when you first heard The Dead and your initial reaction. My songwriting partner and roommate, Stephen Donnelly, had been bugging me for months to go see the dead. He kept referring to him as the second greatest rock and roll band in the world because, of course, the Stones had claimed <laughs> the, the greatest rock and roll band, or Sam Cutler had claimed the title for the Stones, right, let's put right. it that way. And that, too, tips us into the Grateful Dead world because Sam later went to work for the dead. That's right. But in terms of your appreciation, did it happen right out of the gate? Well, I have to confess to you, and I've said this before, so it may not be the first time your listeners are hearing it, but I was put off by some of the song titles. <laughs> oh, my. My precious little California hippie songwriter guy was looking at these songs called Ripple and New Speedway Boogie. And I first of all, I thought Ripple must have been a song about cheap wine. (laughs) Well, that would be an interpretation. And I wasn't a fan of boogie music. You know, I I like the sensitive singer-songwriter stuff, and I didn't particularly care for the, like, the 10 years after at Woodstock, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, the chugling. The high-energy stuff wasn't that interesting to me. This was me being a young snob, to tell you the truth. (laughs) I can confess that from this distance. 
But, I, you know, I missed a lot of music because I thought it wasn't going to be to my liking. <laughs> I feel you. So when I finally heard The Grateful Dead, my little mind was blown. First of all, I took way too much acid for that first trip <laughs> and rode in the back of my buddy's VW up to San Francisco with the throttle stuck on full, by the way, which is a whole other story. <laughs> Wee. But we got there late for the show because of that car problem right. and wound up in the last row of a packed arena. And it must have been 140 degrees up there. And I was just fucking blazing on this window pane. <laughs> and, and I was generally kind of scared and anxious when I was taking acid in those days. I had to give it up for a few years before so I could integrate myself enough to enjoy acid but that's another story i feel you there too i came home from that show with a head full of stuff and little melodic things just sort of stuck in my brain and i sort of started doing some research and figured out what they were uh-huh. and the, the things that grabbed me were the chorus of bertha i can see that i heard black throated wind and jerry's guitar line on black throated wind really got me also everything bob did on greatest story ever told <laughs> yeah he really lays in on that one in that unconventional bob way yeah just these little things that stuck in my head and compelled me to go listen and find out where they came from oh, sure you know i picked up Obviously, Working Man's Dead and American Beauty. It took me a while to appreciate what was going on in Anthem of the Sun and Live Dead. Right. But I started with the more song-oriented stuff because they just grabbed me with that. Mm. And the next time they came to town in August, we went to four shows in a row and I had good seats. And I really got to watch them work and, and notice that they were interacting and listening to each other and prompting each other and signaling each other. But they were playing this music that had space in it, too. I remember Tennessee Jed. Yeah. In the chorus of Tennessee Jed, baby, won't you carry me? Yeah. And everything stops. And it was this moment of like perfect silence that just went on longer than you'd expected. Yeah. That stuff impressed the hell out of me. Sure. Every song had its own character. You couldn't say, well, they write this kind of song. And Jerry Garcia took great pains to never write the same song twice. And listen to Bob Weir's songbook, man. Yeah. Neither of these guys ever backtracked. Nope. Every song they wrote was something new and opened up some new rhythmic and harmonic territory. For a guy like me, it was just like, oh, wow, these universes here. Universes is a great way to describe it. And there are also several different Grateful Deads as well, both in terms of the eras or epochs. Yes. And also in terms of what they're uncovering together as players. It's just fascinating stuff to contemplate. And we also had your old friend Blair Jackson on a little while ago, and he regaled us with tales of BAM magazine, Bay Area Music. Yeah. And you also wrote for BAM. And in doing so, you managed to get into the graces of the Grateful Dead organization, which wasn't easy for a journalist to do. Why do you think you were able to establish that rapport within the inner circle? I approached them as a musician, as a journalist who was also a musician. And I started writing for BAM in 76 as a general interest music journalist. I I had no intention of specializing in the Grateful Dead. You know, uh, Blair told me you did a cover story on Ozzy Osbourne. We had a good chuckle at that. Yeah, that's right. That was in 82. And I was actually hired by Relics Magazine to do that. Right. That was a cover story for Relics in 1982 because Relics was trying to sort of get out of just the Grateful Dead niche. Right. But you'd been covering different music before that. I wrote about a lot of stuff for BAM and got to interview like Leo Fender and the Doobie Brothers and Joe Walsh and people Mm -hmm. like that. But I always was interested in the dead and Blair and I shared that interest. He sent me to L.A. in 77 to interview Bob Weir uh, during the making of Heaven Help the Fool. Nice. And in November of 77, I got to interview Robert Hunter. So I began 
to have relationships with these people very early on. And they recognized that that I had a musician's comprehension of what they were doing. Right. Uh, the real breakthrough for me, I think, was in 81, when the late, great Zahn Artman, who was the Dead's publicist at the time, persuaded Phil Lesh to give me a very, very rare interview. Beautiful. And he, he told me his musical life story in that interview. And then we, I went back for another interview a few months later. And in the course of that one, he was talking about classical music and composer scores and all this stuff. And he said, well, you know, to really get a hold on this stuff, you should come up and have a look at the conductor scores. Wow. And I said, well, I'd love to, sir. Thank you. <laughs> he invited me up to his house one day to show me these conductor scores for the classical pieces he was talking about. That is about. so cool. And that began a relationship that lasted a very long time. I mean, there was one moment we were talking about the way the music flowed and accidental things, and I made reference to a, a show in October of 76 at the Oakland Stadium, one of those Who and the Dead shows, right? where they were closing the first set with uh, Dancing in the Streets, and it just sort of magically, accidentally, and effortlessly tipped into Warfrat. Yeah. And I, I, I mentioned that as a moment that really, really knocked me out and pleased me. And he said, yeah, it surprised us, too. <laughs> There's your confirmation right there. And in that same conversation, there was one point he interrupted his answer to me. And he said, well, you really have done your homework on this stuff, haven't you? Perfect. And so he recognized that I understood what they were doing and could help explain it to the world, you know. So I, Phil and Bobby both kind of sort of took me under their wing and fostered me in the Grateful Dead scene, kind of. And when I became a, a journalist, BAM had a feature, like a monthly feature called Dead Ahead. There was enough going on in the Grateful Dead world that they gave it its own department in the magazine, and they put me in wow. charge of that. So I would go over to the office and hang out with Eileen Law. Yeah. I did a phone interview with Mickey while he was in the hospital uh, after his um, car accident in the summer of 77. Right, wow. And when I was in L.A. interviewing Bobby for BAM, I also did an interview with Keith Olsen, who had produced Terrapin Station and was producing Bobby's new record. Mm -hmm. You know, and I reviewed the magazine. Blair and I did a tandem Siskel and Ebert-style review of of um, Go to Heaven. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. So over time, I just developed relationships. I started hanging out with Bobby a little bit more, got up to his house. We even farted around with writing a song together once. And I got to contribute two and a half lines to Bobby's songs around in the early 80s. Wow. I was hanging around when he was working on um, Hell in a Bucket. Nice. He was singing, You Imagine Me Kissing the Toe of Your Boot. And I suggested, why don't you try You Imagine Me Sipping Champagne from Your Boot. <laughs> oh, wow, man. That's so cool. That's a game changer for me. <laughs> yeah, I was very proud of that. <laughs> you should be. That he adopted that phrase. Yeah. And then later, uh, in 83, Throwing Stones had been around. It had been introduced the previous year. But I think it was 83 or maybe even early 84, I found a couplet in one of my notebooks that I thought would fit, and I handed it to him on a piece of paper in the, at the Fantasy Studios. Mm. And it said, shipping powders back and forth, black goes south and white comes north. Great line, yeah. This was sort of, you know, during the whole uh, Central American cocaine Contra stuff. It was before it all came to the fore. But Heavy. Uh, Bobby liked that and worked it into that 
section toward the end of the song, and gradually it worked its way to the front of that section. He originally was a little later in the recitative, but he moved it to the front. That is so great. Uncredited and uncompensated, but I'm very proud of my contributions anyway. <laughs> right, again, as you should be. <laughs> but I had creative dialogue. They trusted me to understand what they were doing. You know, I could hang around. I was at rehearsals a lot. I was there when they were rehearsing uh, Day Tripper in 1985, and I actually nice. took Bobby's guitar in my hand and showed him the chords of the bridge of Day Tripper <laughs> right there in the middle of a Grateful Dead rehearsal. That's so cool. Thanks, David. <laughs> I mean, obviously, they trusted you enough to allow you access to the vaults when you started the Grateful Dead Hour. I wanted to talk about how you got into the radio game and get a little bit more uh, background on that. Again, Casey, everything that happened to me happened by accident. I did not make a plan for any of this shit. Right. In 82, there was an event in Jamaica called the Jamaica World Music Festival that was produced by Barry Fay out of Denver. And they flew a bunch of journalists down on a junket to attend this festival, the first one hoping to get enough PR out of it that they could make it an ongoing thing. Right. I went to Jamaica with my buddy G. Brown, who for a long time was the critic of the Denver Post. We had this incredibly wonderful, fun, completely debauched weekend. All right. Um, I had sex with a stranger on the beach. Well, then. Uh, smoked a lot of shitty pot, <laughs> uh, ate curry goat off a cart. We just had a wonderful time. It didn't sleep because the music ran so late that it, you know, the dead didn't end till after dawn. And we sure weren't going to waste any daylight sleeping. So we basically just partied and, and listened to music and did journalism off and on for the whole weekend. <laughs> well, it sounds like it worked out better than the fire festival. <laughs> oh, boy. In the course of that, I met Peter Simon and his editor, Bob Miller. Peter was well known at the time as a photographer and had done a lot of photography of the dead, so I knew who he was. And he was also big for doing a book with Steve Davis called Reggae Bloodline. So Peter was a big reggae guy and was about to work on a book about the Grateful Dead. Ah. Bob and Peter were hanging out at the country club hotel where they put up the journalists and they were schmoozing up band members and stuff while they were there. I introduced myself to them, hung out a little bit, uh, asked if, the, if there was anything I could do to contribute, would they be interested in any of my photos, etc. Okay. What I did not know until many years later was that while we were all in Jamaica, Phil Lesh had told Peter and Bob that the guy they had recruited to do the text for Peter's book was not going to have a good time of it with the dead and they should hire me instead. No kidding. I did not find that out until many years later. But Peter called me at some point and asked me if I would be interested in taking over the job of doing the text. And I said, well, of course I would love to do that. Right. And so that led to that first book deal. And that led to appearing on the K-Fog Deadhead Hour. Here in the Bay Area in November of 84, Dave Logan, who was the program director at K-Fog, had started a strip of specialty shows. There was like a... I think he had Mark Naftalin's Blues Power Hour. There was a reggae show. There was a New Age music show and maybe a jazz show or something like that. And okay. Monday nights was the Deadhead Hour. Right. The guy who was hosting the Deadhead Hour, a wonderful man by the name of M. Dung, who passed away a couple years ago, uh, was hosting the show. And he was he was into the dead. He was kind of a deadhead, but he was just grotesquely overworked. He was the morning drive guy, which is the most punishing shift in radio. If you're a rock and roller who'd rather be going to bed at 5 a.m. than getting up and going on the air at 5 a.m. Yeah, puts a crimp in the lifestyle. So he was doing that five days a week. He had his own show called the Sunday Night Idiot. 
great show. <laughs> and so he was relying on a couple of neighborhood deadheads, myself and a, a, fellow, a guy who was an actual MD named Richard Raffel was also a major contributor. And a couple other guys were giving him tapes. Mm-hmm. So I appeared on that show in, on February 18th of 85 to promote my book. Right. And I produced a little piece, an audio piece called Greatest Pump Song Ever Wrote. And that's P-U-M-P, Pump. Yes, which was a documentary about that song that hooked me, Greatest Story Ever Told. Right. There was an amazing story behind that uh, that had to do with Mickey Hart uh, recording a pump that uh, on his grounds up there in Novato and, and putting some log drums on it and then giving the tape to Bobby and saying, write a song on this. That's right. So I had Mickey talking about it. I had Robert Hunter talking about that song. I had Bob Weir talking about that song. And Mickey, God love him, took me into his studio, got the multi-track master out, and spun off isolated tracks of the pieces. He gave me a recording of the pump. He gave me a recording of the pump with the log drums. He gave me a recording of the pump with the log drums and Bob's guitar. So that was my first radio piece. Amazing. And I had so much fun putting it together that I invited myself to join the crew of people that were helping Mike with the thing. And eventually they let me host shows of my own. And eventually Logan asked me to take it over. Yeah. Because it was very clear that I had a lot more knowledge and you know about the Grateful Dead than Mike did. And Mike was happy to have it taken off his plate because of his workload. Yeah, I bet. So I, again, without ever forming the desire or will or ambition to do it, became the host of a weekly Grateful Dead radio show. I was having the time of my life doing it. I can imagine. And started getting calls from other stations. Um, a classic rock station in San Diego. WHCN in Hartford had been doing their own homegrown show, and they asked if they could pick mine up. Mm-hmm. And then WNEW, the biggest rock station in the universe, wanted my show. There's demand. So I went to John McIntyre, one of the managers of the Dead, with whom I was on very, very good terms. And he helped me get permission from the dead to do this. You know, I made a contract with them to do it. And then by the middle of 88, it was doing well enough that I started attracting the interest of syndicators. And I fielded some offers from syndicators that wanted to take it over. And we accepted one. So from Labor Day 88 to Labor Day 89, I was nationally syndicated. The program was supported with ads for Greyhound and the United States Army and stuff like that. (laughs) And sent out on vinyl to radio stations. And at the end of that year, they made me an offer for a second ear that was not sufficient to my needs. And so they handed it back to me at the end of that year, paid off the balance of my contract, and the debt were kind enough to let me keep that money and use it to relaunch as an independent network. And I started migrating toward public radio. Yeah, good for you and everyone. So again, I never made any plans to do any of this stuff, and it has been my day job for 34 years now. And it's quite insane that any of it happened. (laughs) Well, you've got amazing intuition, a deep understanding of the music and the culture, and an approach to this that really does serve the community, the fan base. But I got to ask you in this transformed digital media marketplace that's hyper competitive and vertically integrated, what do you think radio's place is in all of this? I still love radio, man. I enjoy listening to real radio stations when I'm out in the world. And every once in a while, I get to hear my own show coming over the air someplace. And that's sort of a fascinating experience. And there are people that still 
like turning on that show in that time slot and not knowing what they're going to get. Yeah. And I start the show with a montage and go directly into music because I want that thing that we always got from the dead of, oh my God, here they come. What's it going to be? Yeah, it's all really happening and it's happening now. Yeah. And again, my rule of operation here is they're not tuning in for me. So I, I've always tried to keep my participation in it creative, but not overbearing. Yeah. You know, it's about the music. People are tuning in to hear the Grateful Dead. I love that. And there's an immense reservoir of material available and new stuff being created. You know, Bob Weir's on the road with the Wolf Brothers right now and Dead and Company have been touring. So I will pick a show from the archive and split it up over four or five weeks. And in the spaces between, I'll play newer stuff. Keeps it interesting. In fact, the show I'm producing next week is going to be entirely Joe Russo's Almost Dead. Nice. And I think that might be unprecedented in 34 years of doing Grateful Dead Radio that I'm turning the entire hour over to a non-Grateful Dead entity. Isn't it a beautiful thing that the opportunity to do that exists 50 years after the band came together? We knew this. And I remember Blair and I, in 1981, said this in an interview with Jerry. He said, you know, this music, is immortal and it's going to outlive the men who made it. And Jerry said, yeah, that's how we feel about it too. Wow. And I see that now. I go out in the country and I jam with young musicians who couldn't possibly have seen Jerry, but they speak this language brilliantly. There are bands from coast to coast and in other countries playing this music with great gusto and passion and great quality. I mean, there's some shitty bands out there that don't know what they're doing, but most of them, in my experience, are really good at it. And we are implementing the folk process in exactly the way the Grateful Dead did. We're taking their songs and telling their story in our own voices. And the diversity is really incredible. For 20 some years, we've had Wake the Dead here in the Bay Area, a bunch of veteran Celtic players. You know, interspersing Grateful Dead with jigs and reels huh. with a Celtic harp and things like that. I've made friends with a gentleman from Hawaii named Stephen Inglis who released a double CD of slack key Hawaiian style Grateful Dead, nice. which I got to sing harmony on. And now we're, we actually made a record, the two of us with a harpist friend, Anella Lauren, called Fragile Thunder that we're releasing next month. Oh, cool. And we got Robin Sylvester on bass for that, by the way. I like how everyone is so different and willing to take it new places. Yes, I just love it. There's a band out of Dayton, Ohio called the, the Great Northern String Band. They play Grateful Dead. They're like a seven-piece acoustic band. They don't pretend to be the Grateful Dead. They just sing those songs their own way. And that's how it's going to live on. So we talked about how you got started in broadcasting, your overall approach to putting together a show like the Grateful Dead Hour. I also wanted to talk about your experiences on satellite radio, namely the Grateful Dead channel on Sirius XM, channel 23, where you co-host a show called The Golden Road. How did that all come together? In 2007, the guy who was running Grateful Dead productions at the time recommended to Sirius Satellite Radio that they hire me to help them design their new Grateful Dead channel. Amazing. So uh, I did. I went to work with them in the summer, I think, of 2007. And we started planning out what the channel should have. You know, let's have complete concerts three times a day. Let's do a This Day in Grateful mm -hmm. Dead history thing. We, we recruited David Lemieux to do that. And I brought Gary Lambert in uh, and Rob Bleedstein to help curate concerts for the channel yeah brilliant and then in january of 2008 they said let's do a talk show let's have like a round table show where where people can call in and talk about stuff you know maybe we'll do this once a month and get like a special guest in each time and mm -hmm. stuff and we did one of them in i think january of 2008 
And it just went great. People started calling in. We had a wonderful time. We had a guest, Eric Christensen, who had produced a, a wonderful documentary about the Trips Festival in 66. Very cool. So we immediately turned it into a weekly thing, and Gary and I have co-hosted it ever since. And we usually don't have a theme anymore. We used to feel like we had to have, okay, call in and talk about your favorite right, show or right. whatever. Now we just throw the phones open. i got to try that. And we have people in all the time to talk about their projects. Yeah, We've had amazing stuff with John Mayer. John has done the full two hours with us several times. Yeah, I've listened to those. He was just such a delight. And he's so great at describing what it's like to not be a fan and then become one it really does mirror some of my own experiences not that i'm uh, out there playing with dead and company we don't relate in that way <laughs> but you know in terms of come on in the water's fine he's really got an inspiring story there yeah and his grasp of the music and the culture is it's really rewarding to watch him do it and to it's been really fun to have him as sort of an adherent a regular on our show and people love it and people really love to call in we are very very happily connecting the community and what's going on on stage and stuff. And I love it. Just answering the phone, telling stories, listening to people tell their stories, having information. Gary is just an absurdly knowledgeable guy with a, a ridiculously deep encyclopedic awareness of everything related to this stuff. Jazz, Broadway, theater, yeah. television, movies. The guy is just you know, ridiculously knowledgeable. It's so much fun to, you know, compare notes with him and stuff. And I, I've got a reasonably full head of crap, too. So we're able to give a lot of information to people and just sort of talk things through with people. It's fun to listen to rumors. It's fun to listen to stories. And every once in a while, we get somebody who's kind of spun, and we have to go through that thing of trying to get them <laughs> off the air without being complete assholes. <laughs> well, the grace and deafness with which you dispatch those folks is impressive. <laughs> <laughs> In the early years, I sort of had this foolish notion that you could get people to not talk about sort of boring, detailed train spotting stuff. Yeah. But I realized that, hey, man, that's my problem. You know, it was my wish to control things, which was a stupid thing for me to have wished in the first place. <laughs> I'd rather... You know, let the show unfold its own way. We'll talk about anything you want to talk about. If we could spend an hour taking calls on your favorite dark star, that's not a downside to me. So I stopped trying to control things. Yeah, well, you know, you've got a great track history here from everything that you've told me about your life and how you came to this stuff personally and professionally. It all benefits from those happy accidents, right? Everything about my life I owe really to the Grateful Dead for allowing me to basically become a professional deadhead and serve their music. And it's given me the resources to develop my own music. And it's just a simple matter of paying it back, being good to this community that's been so amazingly good to me over the years. And that's our show. To keep up with David Gans, visit his website, dgans.com. Follow Dead to Me on social media at Dead to Me Pod. Visit our website, deadtomepod.com. Dead to Me is a Chunky Glasses production on the Osiris Podcast Network. Recorded in Washington, D.C. with hosts Casey Ray and Eduardo Nunes. Executive producer Kevin Hell. See you next time.